I'm EA Stribling Kivlin, and I'm a Senior Managing Director at Compass, and I'm really excited and welcome to the Real Talk Podcast. Episode 83 of the Real Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Tak Yamaguchi, and the Talk team. I'm here with my co-hosts, or my supporting staff, Ying and Danielle Stout. This episode is produced by the Talk team and the Talk team only. We are not sponsored. Although we were just talking about another favorite podcast of mine, where this drink, Liquid Death, uh, was actually an original sponsor of that podcast. But in any event, I'm pleased to have New York City real estate legend, Elizabeth Ann Stribling Kevlin, aka EA Stribling, on the Real Talk podcast today. EA is a born and raised New Yorker, through and through. Actually, as a matter of fact, you are the fifth, you are a fifth generation New Yorker. She attended the Chapin School in the Upper East Side, then, as most New Yorkers do, left the city because they want to rebel out of New York City. They left the city to go to school at Holy Cross in Massachusetts. Then, after her graduation, she pursued a career in San Francisco, which was outside of New York real estate initially. She well, then... Yeah, very briefly. <laughs> very briefly. And then she jumped back into real estate, but in San Francisco with a brokerage formerly known as Pacific Union, and where that's where she cut her teeth knowing and getting the ins and outs of our business. But as many New Yorkers do, she found that there is no better place in New York City upon her return. She came back and joined her family business, Stribling and Associates, where she helped build the brokerage with her family over the course of 24 years. About four years ago, Compass acquired Stribling Associates, then a firm that had closed about $1.62 billion in sales on the sell side only. This does not count the buy side. With an agent count of about 270 agents, I'm sure it's more if you count the junior agents and the showing agents and the supporting staff and the team and things of that nature. And a robust new development division, which at the time, us Compass did not really have a big presence in. We're going to deep dive into EA's history, her stories, her presence in the market that she specialized in prior to Compass's acquisition and what she does now. Please follow Elizabeth on Instagram E. Stribling Kivlin, I'll put it in the show notes. And of course, her LinkedIn, which I'll also put in the show notes. And on that note, Elizabeth, or EA, thank you for joining Thanks the Real Talk having... Podcast. I know it's hard. I have so many names. I, I actually will go by any of them but Liz. So, <laughs> Is that right? And I actually have a nickname, which I can't believe I'm going to tell you, but everyone outside of Compass, or not everyone, a lot of people call me Biff, B-I-F-F. B-I-F-F, okay. Yeah, it's from childhood, and it sort of stuck. But so I have my outside of work moniker, and my inside of word moniker. Well, I, I feel like Compass agents call you EA. They do. Everyone calls you Everyone EA. calls you Yes. Yeah. So let me call you that for yeah. now. Uh, we're going to start a section called Quick Answers or Quick Hitters. Okay. We're going to turn on the game show music. The first words or two words that come into your mind when I mention the following. Twitter, Instagram, and social media. Dichotomy, needed, <laughs> and also detrimental. Detrimental. Okay. The real deal. Needed. Shout out to Amir Karangi from the podcast. Rent regulation. Equal housing. AI and ChatGPT. Mm, confusing. Confusing. Interest rates. Historical norms. 421A tax abatement. Bummer to see it go. This is the one or the other. Upper East Side or the Upper West Side? Upper East Side. No hesitation. <laughs> Downtown Manhattan or Brooklyn? Brooklyn. Greenwich Village or West Village? Greenwich Village. Street Easy and Zillow. 
Go to your local homepage. The Street Easy Agent Buyer Program. Paying for your own leads. Paying for your own leads, yeah. Stribling and Associates. The past. The Compass Technology. The future. Your thoughts on rent regulation, and this is an interesting conversation I've also had with my previous guest, Bob Knackle. The notion that rents are so high in New York City, do you think that is a result of rent control and rent stabilization laws? Or if not, why? Let's talk about, I'm going to talk about Manhattan to begin with. Manhattan, that's right. And now I can use more, like can use a few sentences. Well, no, this is, this is just free, this is a conversation. So. Um, I think that we have to remember that, and my numbers could be a little bit off, but let's say of the of Manhattan housing stock, 65 to 70% of it is rental to begin with. That's right. Probably what's left of being stabilized and also like the old school programs from when I was a kid, like you'd move into something and it would never change. Mm -hmm. There's not a ton of that left. I mean, we don't have a ton of rent rate in terms of like rent control. Do I think that's why things are so expensive? I think that, you know, obviously a ton of that is also made up of city subsidized housing. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's what creates a more expensive problem. You think the numbers are inflated. So they say a million, about a million units are stabilized or under rent control and stabilization laws. I think a lot of those relate to... But that's 8% of the... If eight, the but a million units is only, if you really look at it, that's... There are 8.5 million people mm -hmm. in the city. That's sure. not actually the majority So you think the affordability all. is not really tied to rent control and stabilization. It's, afford, it's more towards demand. I think it's demand, and yeah. also I think ultimately at the end of the day, there are a lot of things. One, I think not allowing things to get built mm -hmm. uh, stymies because sure. if you can't build product, if you have vacant lots, if we have certain zoning regulations, I mean, I think additionally on top of that, the most probably the most impactful is our geographic constraints. Sure. Right, so there's only so where, so we can only go up. It's an island. It's there's an only island. so much land. And even Queens and Brooklyn. And the Bronx, there is only so many places we go. So I'm not saying that we should just be building high rises in every direction, but I think we need to think about more public and private partnerships, whether it be when, uh, you know, something like 50, 57th Street, when we worked on that project at Scribbling, where a school and a developer came together so that they, there was a new school and a high rise went up. So it was a great partnership. I think there are ways that we can actually create more affordability if we think about the entire whole versus just saying, nope, you can't build. Yeah, the short on that, what you're going back to is 252 East 72nd Street yep. was built in conjunction with the high school next door where the developer, in return for buying, the, I believe, the air rights or, or some of the... It was a land lease with the city. That's right. They, the developer also had to build the backside of the building of the high school, which the entrance, I believe, in 56th Street. Mm -hmm. And the Whole Foods, I believe, too, yeah, right? Whole so Foods the retail well. component was there as well in return. So there was a great partnership. That's a great case study of a partnership of a development project in New York City that actually gone right. Yeah. Had gone right. As opposed to maybe something straight up on 57th Street, just a straight up high rise building that the developer bought with cash and maximizing, you know, yeah. it used to dollar return. It used yeah. to be that if you redid a subway station somewhere in some ancillary part of New York, you could get away with it. Now there has to be, there actually has to be a community benefit. And I think that New York's changed so drastically from when I was a kid. So to see the fact that people are flocking here versus fleeing is awesome. Yeah. But we have to like work to have the infrastructure for that and the housing for that because if we don't have a diverse economy and we don't have diverse housing needs, we can't actually service the city. Sure. If you're gonna be working at the MTA, whether you work at the MTA 
or you work at, at the local clergyman or in a soup kitchen or you're running BlackRock. It doesn't matter. There needs to be housing for you so the city can keep chugging along. So that's why I think there are a myriad of options, but we have to get more creative versus just thinking developers are bad. Mm -hmm. Understood. So let's go touch base real quickly on this treaty easy agent buyer program. This is a really f interesting phenomenon, and I think this was more prevalent across outside of New York City. This buyer program where a third party aggregator, whether it's Redfin or Zillow's TreatEasy, I think even Realtor.com will mask the actual listing agent's information if you're a consumer and will sell that data in inquiry to a third party agent who paid for the marketing. Quick story, I was just messing around trying to find them 10 years ago. Let me find the cheapest property I can buy potentially in Vail, Colorado. And I didn't know where to look. So I went on Realtor.com because I didn't, wasn't really a fan of Zillow as of New York. It's kind of weird. We, weird relationship with Zillow. We don't really use Zillow in New York City. We use Street Easy. But I didn't want to use Zillow, so I went on Realtor.com. And then I inquired on a $400,000 one-bedroom condo. I was like, well, you know, what's, what's the, what are the terms, financing terms, what about the apartment? And a third-party agent came and reached out to me. And I was like, oh, well, this is how it works. I didn't know. As an industry insider, I didn't really want to waste that buyer's agent's time because I felt bad. I just wanted information on that from the listing agent on the terms of the property. So now that we're in present day, newer agents that don't have clients do buy the, these ads from these aggregators like StreetEasy. So what are your thoughts on that? Is it good? Is it bad? Who is it good for? Who does it benefit? And do your agents that you directly manage, what are their experiences? What are their experiences with it? Whether they're on the sell side or on the buy side? Well, I'm gonna answer this like sort of in a little bit of a roundabout way. Yeah. So I'm gonna, I'm actually gonna refer to it as aggregator. So I'm just gonna, when I say aggregator, aggregator overall. in general. So in some ways, I think that, I think with, when you're new to the business, it's it can be a really great way to get into it, but at a very high cost. It is not cheap to do it. You're making a huge investment and you do not know one, how the person is responding to you. Are they gonna be like, oh wait, you're duping me? Or two, how they're gonna respond. You don't have that personal connection. So for some people, it's been wildly successful. They built their business on it. They keep going. I'm for that if that's what you believe works for you. I don't think your entire business should be predicated on it. I think that I always look at everyone's business like a pie chart. Let's look at it year over year and how much of it is coming from X percent. And if it's the pie slices are nicely evened out, I think then, you know, if a little chunk, you don't want to be stuck in everything. Sure. That's very good. That yeah. being said, it's funny you tell that story because I remember, I, so I do single fam, family home investing and I went to look at something in Cape Cod and I ended up accidentally reaching out to the aggregator's agent mm. and it annoyed me so much. And it annoyed me because I actually, in certain areas, if I, I mean, I happen to know agents all over the country, but if I didn't know the agent, I want to go directly to the listing agent. So Why is that? Because I feel they're going to know the most about the property. Right. And, and also you are a in an in and in, in, in and out real estate family. So yes. you know a little bit about real estate. A little estate. bit about it. <laughs> yeah. And then I can't, I don't want to take it out on the agent. So my feeling is if you can diversify your business and you feel like it's something that works for you, I'm okay with that. That being said, you are paying for leads and it, it should say this is an advertisement. I was very involved with the it DOS. It should say, as in Zillow should state that it should? Any aggregator should say this is an advertisement. Sure. Because otherwise, it is an advertisement, and advertising is totally fine. Who does it benefit? It really benefits the owner of the real estate aggregator, aggregator. Website, website. And yes, does it? can it benefit the agent? 2,000% it can, but it benefits the aggregator the most. Okay, does it benefit the consumer at all? If so, how? That's a hard question. If you have to think about it, it probably doesn't. I mean, maybe it benefits them because they get a, you know, to be in those programs, you have to respond within a certain amount of time. And I think that's why one has to have boundaries in life. But I think it's very important <laughs> that you respond to people. You do have that boundaries, right? <laughs> but 
you do need to respond to people because if some if you don't respond, someone else is going to sure. respond. So I guess in that sense, if they don't know an agent somewhere, sure, perhaps they could do it. That being said, I think the consumer should you should always research and find the best person. It may be one of those aggregator agents, but it also may not be. And just because someone's paying for something doesn't mean that they're the best of it. Right. So the moral of the story is the only way it benefits the consumer is the time response yeah. time. Does it, how does it benefit or does not benefit the seller? Or do you think it, there's any correlation there? I think what benefits the seller the most is someone buying their property right. at the highest investment right. number. And if that person comes through there, great. But if you look at, if you look at New York City, for example, I'm gonna get the number wrong, but it's you know well over 50 and well over you know 70% if you look at the deals, are Cobra with other agents. Sure. So agents can use the RLS or the MLS, depending on what market they're in, to actually find things and rely on each other. We have the information out there. It's just whether or not you're choosing to use it. Right. Yeah. And information sometimes can be overwhelming. Yes. We're going to jump into a quick header section where we're just going to tell us about yourself to the listeners. We know you. You're one of the cornerstones of the history of Manhattan brokerages. So let's give the listeners really kind of a more personal side and a professional side of who you are. Tell us something that maybe most of us don't know about about you. I know you know this because we share a passion. Um, <laughs> I'm obsessed with fishing, which is super strange for a kid who grew up. I know, right? Danielle's yeah. laughing over here. <laughs> I grew up on the Upper East Side with non-sporty parents. And I decided one day, I, I read voraciously as a kid, and I probably was reading like The Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew or something like that. I still really like mysteries. And I think I probably read about fishing. And I was like, I too want to fish. And I didn't know what I was doing. So it turns out like years later, I planned like every vacation. Like we, my wife Rebecca is like, where are we going? I'm like, Indonesia, we're going fishing. Okay. <laughs> and my wife, my wife grew up, she grew up in Sonoma, but she lived in uh, the Jersey Shore when she was little. So she also loves fishing. So whatever we can do, we're, we're always going fishing. We love it. We're going actually to Israel next week. And unfortunately the trip only six days because otherwise we'd be out there fishing mm. I think that's probably I think about it all the time I love saltwater fishing and surf casting and then I'm a big here's my nerdy side I'm really into puzzles and Lego mm. I like I like things that make you think, but Legos, I'm actually a big fan of like 5,000 piece Lego kits. You know, I think it does coincide with the job that you had was troubling is you're always, always piecing together relationships, really people piecing together personalities, right? Yeah. It's, uh, and solving a lot of problems. Legos are like that, right? Yeah. And I the like the real thing. estate ones. I'm about to start the Roman Coliseum. So I think that, you know, that's me because I like, I'm like putting together a little, like my version of apartments that I'm doing with Lego. <laughs> I love it. What is your few favorite New York City neighborhood for new development? Dumbo. Dumbo. Okay. Why is that? Well, one, I own a new development that I lived in for a long time in Dumbo. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think Dumbo to me is like, if you think of this like very romantic version of like what New York once looked like, life on like the active waterway and cobblestone streets and this artistic side of it, yet it's like, Maybe, but not anymore, but maybe like there's a little bit of grit and, but you can see it emerging. That to me is Dumbo. Dumbo has like everything you could want. Plus in order for you to get insane views of New York City, you gotta leave the island that's right. to look back. So that's yeah, why sure. I love it. And I would have said that even if I didn't own in a new construction building out there. Yeah, I think one of my, one of my favorite projects is by Live Work, the NCIM, which is the front of yep. New York. One yeah, of my a, closest friends is working on yeah. it. Caleb is one of the salespeople on it. So I oh, love I know Caleb. Yeah. yeah, he actually toured Seeing us. Seeing him tonight. So, yeah, he, he <laughs> toured us a couple of units there. There's some celebrities that live there, and we have some friends that actually live there as well. And really nice project. Yeah. Olympia House is another one yep. that's breaking ground over $2,000 a foot on average, which is 
the most, it's the highest, I believe, in, in Brooklyn yeah. on a per square foot basis. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, so Olympia House is a really interesting project there. I used to do host events at the uh, one hotel on the rooftop, so that's a really fun. That would be where, I, that's where oh. we are. That's oh, where is that right? We have, we have an apartment at Pier House. Okay. And I was actually the first, I was the first non-Toll Brothers and Starwood person to buy. Oh, is that right? Yes, I was. Okay. So you were early, early. I was very early. Yeah. Uh, my mother called me one day and left me this like insane message about how I was buying an apartment there. And I was like, what? I'm like, oh, no, I'm trying to buy a townhouse in Brooklyn. And she said, no, you're buying this. I'm like, are you buying this? She's like, no, you are. And I thought she was crazy. And then I walked into the project and I looked at her and I'm like, oh, you were right. Yeah. So what's your argument against higher common charges there? All of common charges. Are, I don't, they don't seem that high to me, really. Yeah. <laughs> no, but they don't. They have this hotel service, right? So they, they. They gave you the one hotel service, the concierge. The... It's a land lease. I mean, but it's not a real land lease because the park, it's like Battery Park City. I think that there used to be, I remember when I first got into real estate, there was this time in New York where it's like, oh, combined is a dollar blah a foot or blah, blah, blah. People don't really talk that way. I think if you look at common charges, I mean, I, I don't mean that pejoratively, like, like not pejoratively, but like flippantly, oh, they're not that expensive. Yes, they're expensive, but common charges are expensive everywhere in New York. Sure. Absolutely. I agree. And you pay for service as well. You pay for service. And I don't know. I mean, I think if you look at the rent returns in their building, they're really good. So I think that, you know, the it's all relative. It's all being covered. I'm okay it's all relative. That. Yep. Understood. Where are, what are your favorite neighborhoods for in New York City for resale properties? And I'm not talking about just co-ops. I'm just talking about resale in general. NoHo. I love NoHo. Okay. What I is live, this? Again, I think that I hold on to this. I, I believe very, New York changes every day. And if you're not okay with change, I think it's a very hard place to live. Like mm -hmm. Rebecca, my wife said to me recently, oh no, my favorite hat shop closed. And I was like, you never, first off, like how often are you going to Milner? Like you're not, like and, and things change in New York. But like Dumbo, to me, NoHo is this, you walk down the street in NoHo and you just feel like you can really feel the history of New York and you can feel five points and how everything has changed yet has remained the same. I think one of the first law, actually the first thing I sold was on Crosby Street, so not so far away. And mm -hmm. living in NoHo was fun. Like being on the edge of the East Village, I, I really loved it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Great Jones, Bond Street, oh. Bleecker, Broadway. Oh, that corner right there is probably one of the most beautiful Gorgeous. blocks of Manhattan. Yeah. Shout out to our friends at 77 Bleecker. Oh, that was an interesting story there in that co-op. <laughs> that is, that can be a very difficult co-op. <laughs> it can. Yeah, so now, speaking of co-ops, favorite neighborhood for co-ops. Okay, this is a, okay, so I was Are thinking, you conflicted? Well, okay, so if you said to me, like, there are so many obvious answers. Like, you can go to the Upper East Side and the Upper West Side, and you can have these, like, incredibly storied buildings. You can also, I think the East 50s has some really great co-op stock, but I think that Liberty Street downtown mm. has some very, very cool co-ops. And I think the financial district often is overlooked. You think of it as a condo area, but even the South Street Seaport. There are some very cool buildings that converted to co-op many years ago, and I think people don't think about them, and I think that they hold this like very interesting, they have some very, I'm really into architecture. Great niche answer there. Yeah. Can you tell me anything about the board or the buildings that you know? Well, and you why know people should the, move there? Well, architecturally, or I the think, boards. so I think architecturally, you have some really very cool high ceiling, vaulted ceilings, yeah. you have great views. The boards, I think the boards probably aren't super easy, comparatively because they know there are a very limited amount of housing stock. Very niche. I mean, yeah. look at the ones in the South Street Seaport. You walk through this, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, South Street Seaport was still an active fish market. Yes. Which is such a funny thing mm -hmm. to think about. It, it, then it would it would close at 12 and then hose it down and you could just park them. Mm -hmm. Some of those lofts, I mean, you can see how they were grain storehouses, they were beer storehouses. And yeah, you're a little bit further away, I guess. 
from the subway. But I had this real, I don't know, there's just some great books like Edward Rutherford wrote Manhattan and then there's Time and Again. And there are all these great books. And I, whenever I walk down the street, I'm always looking up to see like what's on the cornice. Is there like a hidden gargoyle up there? And I think often when you're downtown, you can think, oh my God, this was a Dutch settlement and this is how all these things came to fruition and how, where we are today. And I think to myself, where are we gonna be in, you know, 75 years? Who will be in my position looking back? And I think down there, you're more connected to the great story of what has made this city of eight and a half million people. Understood. Where, in your opinion, are the best deals right now for property? And let's be specific. No, let's, I want to go type of property, whether it's co-op, condo, single family, and, and why? I've been saying this for a long time. I think if you work in the financial district, I think fair to Staten Island. I think people put Staten Island down all the time. Oh, Staten Island's impossible to get to. Sailor Snug Harbor, you come right in, you've again got great views. You take the ferry, which is free. You can get a reasonable house. You don't have to move to the suburbs. And yeah, okay, Staten Island's a little bit different. They have wild turkeys. My father's family's from Staten Island, so mm. I spent a lot of time out there. I'm not saying it's for everyone, but I still think, I think there's some really great advantages, and I think that we're too quick to push it off. Um, I'm also, I think the Bronx. I think that not enough people understand the Bronx. I think that the, the Bronx has this case, litany of different neighborhoods, whether it be co-ops, you can go to Riverdale, you can go to Arthur Avenue, you can live in City Island. I yep. think City Island is super cool and I think people don't know it enough, I mean, especially for the middle of the fish. I think that to me, it used to be, oh, the proximity to the subway. But now I think Uber and Lyft has sort of made it more democratic where you can live. And then my favorite place, Flushing. I think Flushing is first up the gateway to America. Comes, you come in through Queens. Um, I was funny, I was talking to my mother-in-law the other day, I'm like, of course, where did she immigrate to? Straight to Flushing. Sure. And that's where, you know, so many people have that story and there's incredible stories about what Queens has afforded to people. And I think it's probably, the, it is the most diverse borough in New York. But I think also you can, if you take Long Island Railroad, you can be at Penn Station in 18 minutes. You can be at the airport. There are all these wonderful things. And Jackson Heights for co-ops, amazing. I love Manhattan. It was a great place to grow up. I love living in Brooklyn, but I think there, um, we should be exploring the boroughs more. Understood. So those are some great answers. And the type of properties that you would be looking for that you think would be good deals right now in the Bronx, Flushing, are we talking single family homes or multifamily homes? Are we talking townhouses? Are we talking detached? Maybe t you know two family. Like, what what are you thinking? For me personally, I don't invest in multifamily homes. I used I used to own a multifamily building. Why is that? Well, because I owned one in New York, and it's a lot of work. It's a yeah. lot of work. You got snow. You've got oil. You've got con end diverting streams into your building, which does happen, by the way. Sure. Um, it turns out I had a whole stream on Twenty Third Street divert into a building I own. Caused massive problems. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So uh, yes, I prefer single family homes and condos. I think that uh, one asset is a little bit easier than multi things going on <laughs> um, I, for me it's easier i think in the bronx i'd be looking at condos i'd also be looking at single family houses i think there's such a and also in queens i think that there's a to have four walls that don't touch anybody in new york city like, it's rare what a luxury yeah yeah it I doesn't mean, happen very often yeah no i mean you, you if you like someone was oh it's so loud i was like well this is not the place for you yeah right like you i'm not saying that we need to have huge decibel levels all the time but I think there's only so many single-family homes that can be built here. Right, understood. Those are a finite in amount. Mm -hmm. So you were running about 400 agents back in, at Brackwoods Tribbling Associates, mm -hmm. and then now you're at Compass. How has your day-to-day -day changed in that aspect? Well, there are a lot of agents here. So I'm also the broker of record for Compass New York City. Okay. So I have about three, I get 2,500 to 3,000 licenses under my name. So I do a, a lot of my day is compliance. So sure. I don't directly manage agents. I mm -hmm. manage managers. 
And because of the compliance aspect of my job, I spend a lot of time looking at licenses. Are we following the law? How can we educate? We fair just renewed housing? ours, actually, by the way. I don't know if you saw that. Did you? Danielle and I just renewed our licenses. I appreciate that. <laughs> I love that. that Two years goes me. by quick. <laughs> I know, doesn't it? I'm, so I do a lot of that. And yeah. then, what, you know, it's been so great for me. I, running Stribling was incredible. It really was a family. But the nice thing is that the majority of that family is still here at Compass with me. And here I get to, I, I, Thursday, so I host a national call for the company every month. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, it depends on the month, but we get anywhere from, you know, probably a thousand to a few thousand people come to it by the time it's de de disseminated around. It's for me, the fact that I can talk to, talk about the markets and talk about a company that is one overarching leadership, that to me is something I'd always dreamed of. So sure. I get to do that. Am I busier here? In a different way. Sure. Yeah. So, but Do you prefer maybe being like the manager that actually directly deals with agents on a day-to-day -day basis, or do you have a, do you have a preference on your day-to-day -day now? Now that I you're like, broker like of record in New York with how many agents do we have? Five thousand. Around three thousand. Three thousand agents. Okay. So a lot. Um, I love that. I mean, so for me, I was a sales manager for a long time, but I really like this sort of. I like the minutia of the running, and I also like the sort of ideation part of it. So for me, I get to do that, but in a different capacity. Okay. But there's things about it that I don't have to do. Like, I don't have to do HR anymore. Mm -hmm. You know what? That's awesome. Yeah. Because I realized the larger you get, we had 400 agents, about 50 employees. By the time I sold the company, so much of my day was HR. Sure. And that wasn't... That's not really brokerage. That's not brokerage. It's not fun. I want, you know, Corporate. I want to do real estate. Yeah. And so here, I'm getting to do real estate, and I'm getting to do it across... Oh, many more states. Got it. So I love that. Got it. Before we go into the yeah. deep dive questions, you know, you talked about your fishing adventures. Do you, where's your favorite? Uh, do you have a fit favorite area that you like to go and what type of fish you like to catch? I spend a lot of time in Fire Island in the pine. Is it good there? I've never, I've never fished there before. Awesome. On the bay side or on the ocean bay side? Bay and ocean. Both. A lot of big fluke. Mm -hmm. So last summer people weren't hitting fish. My wife and I were just, we have a captain, Captain Jeff, he's a former NYPD homicide detective. Shout out Captain Jeff. Jeff, who's the best. And he has this incredible charter boat out of Sayville. So we go out with him. Love it so much. And then striper season comes out, so that's a ton of fun. We're in striper season right now. Yeah. They're migrating from Chesapeake Bay. And it's so fun. And then my other favorite place, Puerto Vallarta. Oh, why is this? Well, I think if you are, go on my Instagram, you can see the fish you get. You get the these, mahi. You get the mahi. Unbelievable. I mean, that's so much fun and to be out there. I like a fish that's a fight. Um, I will say I'm very much into sustainable fishing. So 100%. anything that I catch is eaten. And or, or is released. Yeah. Yeah. I don't believe in just fishing to fish. And, you know, I'm actually like, if you see me on the weekends, I'm probably running around with a hat with a shark on it. I'm like a huge shark conservation nut. Let's not fish for sharks, right? No, I don't want to fish for I sharks. Agree. No. Unless they're ac accidentally caught, but yeah, but like they're go. so good for the ecosystem. That's right. Yeah. I don't want right. to. My goal isn't to go out there. I'm not like Hemingway with the old man in the sea. I don't need to catch the biggest fish, no. but I'm going to have a good time doing it. 100%. 100%. And then talk about the quick story about how you got shot at once in Montana. Oh yeah, why in Montana? That's so funny <laughs> they say that. Um, so I, this is not. This is not. She got shot at. So I also clay pigeon shoot, and I was out at a place called Blixt in Wyoming, and we were. I was with my two best guy friends, and we were out there. We were doing simulated driven shooting, and they said, "Would you like to go fly fishing, trout fishing?" And I was like, "Yeah, completely." So I'm out on the river. It's so gorgeous, and there's moose everywhere. I'm catching multiple types of trout. I'm like. And all of a sudden we hear gunshots going off and they're hitting the water. And I'm with this incredible guy who's considered, he's actually Dick Cheney's personal guide to Wyoming. Wow. And he says to me, and he like threw me to the bottom of the boat. And he said, I, he said to me, you know, it's funny. I was out fishing last week and it was all the, all the Republicans. 
Yeah. So like the Speaker of the House was there. Wow. And he said it was all Secret Service. And he goes, if this had happened last week, I can't even imagine what would happen. But yeah, it was scary. I think people were just unloading their guns. I, and they were just unloading into the, the water. But it, they came very close to us. But I will tell you, it was scary. But then we just kept fishing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what do you do? What are you going to do? You're floating down the river. You float might as, nothing might as well. Might yeah, as and then well. we just started making a lot of noise. And the hope was that they hadn't seen us. Yeah, but sure. that's why... Gun regulation and gun safety is very important. If you're unloading your gun, don't unload it into the river. You don't, yeah. Always look to see if people are around. It's going to be very, very, very safe. That's right. So do you prefer, just another fishing question, just because we're, I'm into it so yeah. much. Are, are you more of a troller, caster, jigger? What do you prefer? I mean, surf casting, obviously, you said surf. So surf casting you have is specific... my all-time favorite. Like One, it's hard. It's hard because the odds of getting a fish with surf casting. Surf casting is very hard. It's very hard, and it's like... Not one in a million, but like it's not, it's one in a lot. I love, I love getting up early, sitting on the beach. I find it like people meditate. I am not a meditator because of my, I have some pretty severe ADHD. And, but so fishing is my meditation. So to be out there sitting there and when you feel that tug and you have your coffee and you know, you probably have a book too because surf gas. Sure, yeah, surf gas. That is probably my favorite. Other than that, anything on a boat in salt water. I do like fly fish too. I love it too, but. For me, it's rolling's fun. It's all fun. Yeah, it's all good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Any I mean, day on the water is a good day, isn't I it? I mean, honestly, it sounds so crazy, but if I'm, like, at a lake in Connecticut and I had a tiny little rod with, like, a sunfish on it, I would still have fun with yeah, that. It's fun. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, 100%. Still yeah. Okay, good. All right, so this is not a fishing podcast, so on to the next yes. topic. <laughs> But anyways, I, I really like talking about fishing. And, you know, on this podcast, we always talk about, sometimes, depending on the guests, we talk about sports. We talk about, you know, other extracurricular activities that we, we are human at the end of the day. So when your mother, I, the legendary Libba yeah. Stribling, launched her brokerage in 1980, listings were still captured on index cards. What was the then, when you joined, the turn of this, the turn of the, I guess, the, that, that year, what was the tech change then for you? What was the new tech? So I joined Stribling in 2003. We had something called the RLX. RLX. I think it was the RLX was what it was called. And it was like, basically like, you're probably too young for this, but there was was something called Print Shop where it would like dot matrix print and you could have like a huge banner that was like, happy birthday, Jody. And like had a birthday cake on it. Anyone who's over the age of 45, I'm 44, but will know this. And it'd take like nine hours to print. Nine hours? Oh my goodness. But it was like dot matrix. And that's what this listing system is. So you Mm. went into the listing system and it was like green and you had to commit, it was like command weird buttons to print. So we did have something, but it was not as progressive as the RLS is now. And it wasn't web-based. It was, so I would say that, you know, we, at the time, arbiter of all things real estate on, on the web level was the New York Times. Mm, got it. Yeah, the New York Times had, was the then aggregator. Everyone had to go on New York, and people, you spent a fortune to have spotlights. Yes, I'm sure. Yeah. There are some interesting acronyms that I learned as well about brokers that posted on the New York Times. They were just, what, what are some of the acronyms that back in the day that were on those ads? Like, for example, I'm, I'm like, Eating Kitchen is E-I-K. Okay. FDR, Formal Dining Room. There you go. Keep going. Um, oh, God. I can't even think of Oh, I got another one. WBFP. Oh, Woodburning Fireplace. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I haven't thought about that. Yeah. Walking Closet, WIC. WIC. Yeah. I mean, okay. it was like all these different. I totally forgot about that. Because you only had a certain number of characters, and it was like by line. And it was expensive oh, for it was very expensive. Oh, yes. It was very expensive. It's so funny. For years and years, my first list, <laughs> I had my little classified ad. Oh from the New York Times. Oh, wow. I was so proud of it because the first time I was in the New York Times. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. That, 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 that has to be, uh, for every agent, that has to be a, a prideful moment yeah. if they were doing that back in the day. So when Stribling started, what was the goal when you joined? What was the goal then? 
where was there a goal? What what was the target? And what was kind of the focus for that brand? So my mother started for when I was ten months old. So I was a, a and she had been planning to start it. So when I give her a huge amount of credit for here starting a company with like the time. I mean, I was ten months old when it opened. But in reality, she probably started it when I was six months old. So sure. here's a woman who's like, I'm really going to go for this. I think that, and this is what happened when I took it over, we always felt, I, and many people have heard me say this before, my favorite type of restaurant, the two favorite types of restaurant, and you can be one, can't be the other, except in very small circumstances. It's so great when you go to a restaurant and they go to the Union Square Market or they go to whatever market it is, and they have three appetizers, three entrees, and three desserts. Because you know it's based on like the best produce being the best of what they are. They're doing their type of cuisine or whatever their specialty in, and they're doing it perfectly and they're not trying to be like the Pangea of everything right that was the model for, for Strickland and that we started on the Upper East Side we were very Upper East Side co-op driven my mother started with about eight brokers and they knew what they did well and they wanted to keep doing that eventually my mother bought Walton Gay which was the longest continually running resident actually I tell this is so funny because Compass now owns that Stribling bought the Walton Gay which was the longest continually running residential real estate firm in America so with that acquisition, Compass actually owns it, is I guess technically part of the largest running real estate company in the country. And we bought something that was very specific. It was Chelsea and the village and blah, 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 blah. And so that to me was the goal. The goal was to be the best that we can be and not dilute our brand. And we weren't focused. People would come in and say, blah, 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 company's doing this or blah, blah, blah is doing this. And my mother once said, I don't care. I can focus on what everyone else is doing and be reactive or we can be proactive and continue to do. It's like you go to the diner. At the diner, you can get split pea soup, an omelet, a grilled cheese sandwich, or, you know. Steak. Or scrub Scr Florentine. And sometimes <laughs> they have like a lobster tank, and you're like, eh, yeah, yeah. But they're one of the few people who can do everything and do it well. And I think to be, it's very, to become that is very, very hard. So it's like what I say to agents. Everybody says, I want to go to the next level. Totally, I get it. And I want you to go to the next level, but don't step, skip a step because you can't be the next thing unless you've perfected or come to, tried to perfect a rung on the ladder because if you you can't be everything to everyone always. Right. And so the goal was never to dominate or have the biggest number of agents or mm -hmm. expand into every neighborhood. You just had your niche, your focus, and that was exactly the Upper East Side? Upper East Side. Upper, upper West Side? Upper, you said Chelsea. Yeah, so Upper East Side, Upper West Side, I would say we're our, we had the stronghold on Central Park West, Midtown, Chelsea Village, and then we did open in Brooklyn. So we started doing very well in Brooklyn. And then we were the third largest new development company. Well, pause on that. You also did have an office in Tribeca, which is oh, actually yes, the office that I, I visited. I forgot about Tribeca. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. forgot about <laughs> the Verizon building. You were still there. I wasn't in, I, was, I visited that office when some friends of mine joined there. Shout out James Cox and Frank Giordano. Yeah. And that was my, that was my first time I visited a stripping office outside of walking past West 23rd Street, the townhouse. Yeah, I lived upstairs for years. <laughs> so, so your specialty at the time was just kind of focus in those areas and, and comparing it, you just said like a diner, like if they had a lobster roll, that would be like fi die for you, yeah. right? Did we sell or, some stuff there? Yeah, sure, of course we did. Sure, yeah. Well, we, you know, we, we knew we couldn't be everything to everyone and that's, you know, we were okay with that and people want to be People want to be everything to everyone and be the biggest name. That wasn't so huge to me. I Back think then, that, yeah. Yeah, even... Well, what about today, then? Well, I mean, Compass is trying to be everything to everyone now. Now that we're trying to be 25% of market, of every market, of every city. But we're someone who can do that. And, right. and that's the thing. I mean, I think that the way that Compass was built 
I think there are very few people who can do it. There's another company here in New York I think has done it very, very well also. Mm -hmm. And I think that they made very strategic acquisitions. Mm -hmm. They were smart. They filled. They saw where the gaps were. They filled it in. They knew. They listened to their agents and what they needed. And I think that that, I think you, a lot of people set out to be that. You know, I think a lot of people think you come into New York City, you spend a lot of money, you'll win. That's not always true if you have a big name. You have to be smart. You have to have this caring side to you. And I think this is Compass is one of the few examples of a company that can offer its agents, sellers, buyers, whatever it is, a lot of different things and do it well. And I think that that is a, a real, that's a real niche that's hard to come right. into. Right. Well, during your heydays of Stribling and Associates, give me some of your highs. I mean, we've had great markets, not even just about markets, but also maybe give us some of your lows, your losses, your, you know, the, some maybe periods that were not really so terrific for you from yeah. a business or maybe in a personal standpoint. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I, it, the highlight was probably getting the plaza. The pl We represented the sale Tell of the plaza. Tell us about that. We represented the sale of the plaza. It was awarded, it was Libba and Alexa and Rosita Sarnoff and Chris Wilson and Libby Riedel and all these great people worked on it together. And I think that we were not probably going to be the front runner because of our size. Sure. But we were the right brand for it. We were the brand that would be 2,000% committed to it. We were the brand that appealed probably to the supposed buyer. Um, we understood the sort of crossroads of Midtown and the Upper East Side and what that would parlay into. Um, that to me, and you know, I think my mother's this, the cherry on her Sunday is that she replies, responds to it. I think that was a huge win. I think the other huge win. Well, you go back to this plaza. What did the plaza represent at the time when you all took over as the exact, the exclusive uh, team? It meant market? that we, we it's to me, a hundred percent. What one? We were one of the top real estate companies. We had a huge new development wing. It's what it meant, and it meant that people knew, noticed and that people saw what we were doing. And I think to me, I didn't need to be the number one firm in New York, but I to be recognized for like the diligence and the hard work of the company and what we could produce. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think one of the, what's well, so funny, I went to make a, a reservation at a place called the Whis, the, it's like the whiskey room or the flat iron room. And I called up there once and I said- well, West 26th Street. Yeah. yeah. And I said, Stribbling. And they said, oh, like the real estate company. Oh, And I was like, how cool. yes. How and great. that to me was like this super proud moment. <laughs> and not because I often, like I detach myself from the fact that it's my last name often, I think of it in terms of the company. Sure. And I thought, okay, well, you know, here's someone who's, you know, this is like their college job right out of college and they know the real estate company. Yeah, so like we're making some impact. Cool. That's and great. I love that. That's great. That was big for me. What what do you think you did that made you and Alexa Lambert win that project over others? I mean, obviously there's Corcoran and there's Element and there's other large names out there. What what do you think you did that was different or special that one made you win that pitch to sell the plaza? I think very, very smart agents. Like Alexa, were there on it. I think people who understood new development. New development, I think there are a lot of misnomers about new development. And a lot of people think, oh, I really want to get into new development because they think that there are huge perks to it. There are a lot of huge perks to it, but there's a lot of. It's not that glorious. I worked in it for a long time. I worked on a project that did not, unfortunately, um, Lehman Brothers collapsed. Yeah. And so I probably was worth about 45 cents an hour. Did I learn a ton? Yeah. I worked in a 450 unit building. I mm -hmm. learned a ton, but it's, you know, Yes, you get a big payday at the end that probably took can take five years to get to, right? So I think that, you know, and you sacrifice often your residential resale business for it. Um, so 
I think that uh, there was a good team. I think that we had the track record. And I think ultimately at the end of the day, I think that we were all really, really hardworking. Sure. And I think that, I think that anything, I always say that, yes, there, there may be times you get a listing and the price may be too high, but you have to believe in what you're doing. And if you don't believe in the product you're selling, you can turn it down. Mm-hmm. And we're so, agents are so easy, and myself included, to say yes. But sometimes you need to say no and believe in what you're doing. It's a great lesson. It's hard for us to say no, oh, especially so when it comes to business. Yep. Your lows. I think Lehman Brothers, the collapse of Lehman Brothers was hard. What did you lose? Well, a lot of business. And I think it wasn't just business. I think what was upsetting is I believe that everyone who worked there was like family. I mean, they really were. They were a small group of people. And, you know, to have to lay people off is heartbreaking because, you know, I I believe that, you know, we fully paid for health care for our employees. We had, you know, we were very committed. And I believe that whatever I could do to help them with their families was really important. So to have to do that because business wasn't great, that you know you know at the end of the day you're making the practical decision but you know it i think that it's so important whether you're the ceo of a publicly traded company of a private family-owned company or you're the ceo of your own group you have to lead with empathy but you also have to have practicality and i think the day that you stop having emotion about your decision is probably when you're not being a great leader. Sure. You don't have to be guided solely by it, but you have to be cognizant of it. I think that was very hard. And, you know, I think for me, it took a long time. And I for I think that it was hard for me. I took losses or things said about the company or me um, very personally for a long time. And I think it took me, and I still get upset, obviously, today. I'm a human and I'm a soul. But I think that um, there were times I had to grow as an individual and grow as a business leader to realize that I couldn't control everything. And my every one of my agents, to see them go from go from having a, even a, what, no, I'm not even talking about the top agents, I'm talking about people just trying to support their families, to seeing the world come to a complete standstill, that was that was hard because you worried about how they were gonna feed their kids. Yeah, it's, it's, and people pray for crashes for themselves, but they don't realize that a crash is, will likely affect themselves and everybody else around them. So yeah, it's, it's a it's a huge it's a huge pain point in, in anyone's business, especially in real estate. When the 2008 was a real estate led recession. Oh right? yeah, and I think it's so easy for people to say that. Oh, people say, oh, when the economy crashes, I'm going to buy a ton of property. They're not actually, <laughs> and they never do. Um, I actually buy in down markets. That's when I buy, and um, I, I I'm actually scared of when everyone else is buying. That to me is like a little scary. Sure. Um, and I buy stock when the when the, the day after leaving, I started buying stock. Why? Because I actually, I believe in the U.S. economy and I wanted to pump some money into it. And I felt that, you know, I was going to hold anyway for capital gains and taxes. And But I did it because if things are low, I, I actually think there are times and there are opportunities there. But most people don't want to do, they want to do what everyone else is doing. They mm-hmm. don't want to be the outlier. Mm-hmm. And... I think they get very scared. So it's very easy to say people say, oh, when the recession comes, I'm going to buy it. They're not going to do it. <laughs> right, right. And it's a cyclical market, yeah. so you just never know. With regards to you, you were the number one brokerage stripping of associates in 2017 in Manhattan with the average highest sales price of $4 million per transaction. So you were immensely successful. You were also doing over a billion dollars in sell-side deals, buy-side, I'm sure. 
two billion. I'm sorry, two billion dollars <laughs> in sell side. Things were pretty good for you yeah. and your brokerage and your agents. Everyone was extremely successful under your wing and your leadership. So why in 2019, when you were approached by Compass, even consider, consider remotely, not even like, hey, Rob, like, let me call you, like, and, and you want to acquire us. Why would you even consider that? Well, it took a lot longer than that, but um, I <laughs> So, so, okay, so this is what I only know from the yeah, public's yeah, yeah. standpoint, right? We were, we were approached and closed, I think closing was in 2019. So I'm sure yeah, conversations first. began no, been, way, been before, way that. before that. Fine. Um, you know, it's funny. I, well, I, you guys were good. Yeah, more than good. So we, and then hindsight, I didn't have to go through COVID, so pretty glad I, I didn't. Right. Okay, fine, <laughs> no, fine, you're right. COVID, let's, let's just leave COVID. Side. No one knew about uh, COVID, so fine. You know, it's funny. I, um, I've known Rob for a long time. Uh, Rob and I sat, I actually took him, when he first started the company, I took him out to breakfast. And 2011? Yeah, 2012, somewhere around sure. there, really early. When he was talking to Gordon, maybe. Yeah, I think Gordon had just started it. I, I remember we went to breakfast. We actually brought Rob and I talk about this all the time. We went to breakfast down the street, and we still comment about how good the bacon was. But um, he like brought his investor pitch. He's like, "You should work here." And I was, you I was like, work "Okay." Here. Like, well, all right. And I was like, "You should work with me." Like we had like this funny banter, and we'd like email back and forth, and we'd see each other. And he, and we, it was just, it was a good. And I said to him like, "Hey, listen, anything you need, you reach out to me." And I was his big. I'm actually, and I like almost like you were looking at him as you were the mentor, basically. Yeah, I mean, to, for like to, the one breakfast, and that was it, right? right? But like, I think that Rob and I have always had a very similar ethos to how you do things. I. I didn't have non-competes as dribbling. And I remember I was in an article once and he's like, yep, I get it. And I, and I always said I wanted to play nicely in the sandbox. And I think we very much looked at the real estate world in the same way. And I actually was his biggest defender. I remember people would say, oh, blah, 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 blah. They're doing this and they're doing this. And it was like, I can't focus on what Compass is doing. Like, I, I appreciate it. I love what they're doing. I think they have some really interesting ideas. But like, my life is not going to be based around what Compass is doing. I got to do what I'm doing. Yeah. And, um, and it, it's working. It's Don't working. change it. I'm not. I actually didn't really lose anyone to Compass. Um, and I remember someone here. She Rory said to me at <laughs> once. He's like the greatest compliment I can give you is I can't get your agents. I was like, okay. Yeah. I said I actually appreciate that. And yeah, that that is a huge compliment. Well, we just you know we were who we were, and did we lose some people? Yes, but not really. We weren't, and it wasn't because we were doing anything differently. Um, I think that you know Rob had come to me a lot of times, and one day Rob called me. I remember actually know where I was sitting. And I said to him, he goes, you know, would like to buy you. And I said, guess what? You have to date me first. Mm. He's like, what? I'm like, you can take me out to breakfast. You can take my mom out to breakfast. I can meet the people. I can go to one of your offices and another. I can do all these things. But I said, this to me, I said, for us to make the decision to sell is a lot. We don't need to. And if we want to, there are going to be reasons, but we're not there. So we'd have conversations back and forth. And then one day, and it actually comes down to my mother was the one who ultimately... You know, I think that she knew for me, like I really wanted to do something nationally and that was huge for me and I couldn't do that at Stribling. And I think that we saw the brokerage industry was changing pretty rapidly. So- In what ways? I think the outside tech firms are really coming in. Yeah. And I don't mean Compass and I don't, I, I mean, there were a you lot of- You talking about Zillow aggregators or open door and iBuyers All or? of that. Okay. I think all of that was coming yeah. in. I, I, I told this famous story, I was on my, I got married in the Caribbean and it said that one of the aggregators was opening a brokerage in Florida. Hmm. And my mother claims that I chucked my iPhone at her, which I say I didn't, but I'm sure knowing me, I did. And I was like, <laughs> I'm like, the world is about to change. And I really meant that because I felt that. And I think a lot of people think what we do is super easy, which it is not, and want to get their hands in it. 
And if it wasn't lucrative, they wouldn't want to get their hands on it. Um, and so we were at a conference in Austin, Texas, who's who in luxury real estate, and someone said, they sure, everyone was complaining about Compass. And my mother was like, this is a waste of time. Why are we complaining about Compass? And she turned to the table and said, what do you think would happen if you combined heritage and Compass? And someone was like, you'd be unstoppable. Heritage, for, for reference, is another like, large like, you know, like heritage, agency. No, 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 like heritage, like Stribling, like a oh, heritage oh, brand, okay. right? Yeah, got it has a track record, has been around for a while, has name recognition. Has the top, top brokers. If you combine that, it was just, it would be unstoppable. And she called me and she said, I think we should talk to Rob again. And I said, yeah. I said, and then, you know, there was a time when a lot of people were pursuing us. And what does that mean? A lot of people were pursuing to buy? To buy struggling. struggling. People would come, I mean, we were have people would constantly trying to buy us. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, what mattered the most to us is I wanted to get up in the morning and come to a place where I felt the culture was similar. And if you said to me, like, what is it about Compass? Why do I get up and come in here every day? It's the people. Sure. I mean, it's 2,000% the people. And I think when you're surrounded by great people, it inspires you to be a better version of yourself. When did you have that aha moment that we're going to sell? Or was there a specific instance or something that you saw or something that Rob said? I mean, it has to be more than money. You, you're bringing your your basically your children, four hundred children, your people, children, which is not your easy. family it members. It's not easy to make a cho choice for people. Terrible, it's terrible. It's terrible. I actually three three months after I sold the company were the worst of my life. I was on the phone with Rory to like one in the morning every night. Um, because you had agents that are people. loyal to you for yeah. 10, 20, 30 years people were that are oh furious. Oh EA, yeah, what are you furious. doing to us? The brand I've was been loyal to you. What I mean what? What I felt that? that we could keep doing what we were doing, but I felt that the industry was changing so much. That I didn't know how long. I couldn't provide 500 engineers. I couldn't. I could. I didn't have that capacity. Yep. And I thought my agents needed the technology, the tools, the reach, everything that they wanted, that they'd asked for, that Compass was doing. And we're struggling at Compass, although I work in a much broader capacity. Mm, yeah, sure. Um, of course. We ha They have that. So they have the best of everything. And I felt that time had come. And I just felt I knew that the place for an independent brokerage like mine, I didn't know how much longer it would be there. And mm. I think that every day that's getting, I think that's squeezing more and more and more. Um, and I think that if you're gonna hang your flag with a bigger company, you've gotta pick the one. To me, it wasn't about the check at the end of the day. The bigger the, the check wasn't the, the answer. It was where are people, where can I come in every day and say like, I'm really proud to work here and my agents can be proud to work here. Because my name, no matter what can't, I mean, at the end of the day, it's not going to change and it can't go away. I'm sure there were a lot of agents angry at you for yes. doing this without yes. their even knowledge or maybe they didn't even have a clue. I'm sure that a lot of them didn't have any Nobody clue. Knew. Nobody knew. Even your top, top agents probably <laughs> didn't know. And, and I'm sure they were mad at you. What would they say now? What would they say now? I still think they wish they'd made the choice for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I, but I think that, you know, we had something like a 93% retention rate. Yeah, yeah. And... The only a really small, I, small I, I've tracked the records. Yeah, the real deal small. loves this drama when they agents go this way and that way. But yeah, it's really very, very, very small, small amount. Um, I think that, you know, I think they'd be happy. I think that they, Good. they I think that the thing about, I always say about Compass, I say this to everybody, we have everything you could want here, but you, if you don't try and use it, you don't have access to it. Right. So, and they have access to that and they also have the incredible managers and the, all the stuff that go with it. So I think they're the best of every world. So when the announcement happened, what was that day like for you? 
with phone calls and conversations. This is the, my favorite question, actually, out of all the questions that I... <laughs> um, I a lot. It's a different day in your life. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I, oof, yeah, it's so funny. I, um, I actually took the, I took the morning off before it because I knew it was coming. And I took myself out to breakfast, and I like had breakfast oh. by myself. Yeah, no, because I the knew. The morning the article came out. No, the, well, because I what, announcement. The announcement came out, and I knew it was coming. So I like went out and I had this very calm breakfast in Tribeca by myself, and I because I knew I had to get my mind off it because I had such anxiety over yeah. the fact that it was coming out. So I had this like really lovely breakfast, and then I told my senior leadership team because nobody knew. Um, in this one sp we at a specific conference room somewhere, and uh, we made them turn their phones off. Wow. And then we announced it. Um, the funny thing is, oh, I had people screaming at me. I had people crying. I had people congratulating me. I had everything. It was just a whirlwind. Like, I feel like you're engaged. And when you get married, you don't remember your wedding. You know, your wedding's just yeah. like, it's like so many okay. people that you don't, you don't remember. And people always like, can say, you know, what does that day look like? Every year, it looks different to me. Uh, but that's so funny. I was scheduled to speak that night at an IRAC event. As oh. was Robert. And um, we went and spoke. And so it just, you know, what are you going to do? You're just going to hit it head on. And, yeah, I mean, it was a lot. It was a, I think that we shocked a lot of people all over the real estate world globally. I mean, people were shocked by mm -hmm. it. And I had people from all over the world being like, I can't believe. Smartest decision. I can't believe. Um, yeah, it was a, I didn't sleep for a few weeks. What what about the developers that you were representing at that point in time? Did they have any, was there any friction there or? I think there was friction with everything, but I think the majority of people stayed. I think that the, you know, the good thing about our developers and the people we work with, I think they're very loyal to their agents. Mm -hmm. And as long as their agents were happy, they were happy. And I think that, you know, it's like every day it gets, it got a little bit easier. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. It worked out. It worked out in the end. It's a historical <laughs> moment, right? It's yeah, a historical moment yeah. for Compass, at least in, in expanding the footprint in New York yeah. City, because Compass always had a lack of presence in the uptown yeah. market, especially in the co-op world in Upper East, Upper West, and also new development. So that really kind of shifted our to where we are. I mean, it's everything is a building block, right? First they get Leonard, and they get Kyle Blackman, and they get all these other agents to kind of build. But then you get Stribling, and it really kind of shifted the the way that I think Compass has yeah. been. A scene from the public side also so we're just to wrap up here okay. and, and I know that you know you're busy and you're super busy so I appreciate your time could you give yourself advice of when you started as a as a in the brokerage world in New York City you know what kind of advice would you give yourself then at that point in time of your agent and what kind of advice would you give yourself to agents today in today's market with all the tech and all the aggregators and all of that going on and a lot of noise outside so just two one for yourself when you first started out and one for agents that are starting out today. I think for myself, um, other than buy more real estate. Uh, <laughs> buy more Manhattan real estate. Buy more, real estate, buy more Brooklyn. Um, yeah, I mean, I, there's a penthouse I wish I bought at Gilsey House, but it was like nothing then. Yeah. Um, I wish that I'd been more confident in my ability to say no. Mm. I really wish that because I chased a lot of leads I didn't have to and wasted a lot of time at my own personal and professional sacrifice. And I, but I think that that's a really hard thing to teach yourself. And there's a real difference between hubris, ego, and believing in yourself. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's really hard to say no to business, like I really said. Hard. We're all brokers. Okay, and what about to agents today in today's market with everything that has shifted and changed with tech and marketing and 
and aggregators and, comp and even competition. It seems like there's probably more agents today than there were 30 years ago. It's okay to say I don't know. It's really okay to say I don't know, but I will find out. That to me is like the mantra of my life. I don't know, but I'll find out because you will get more business from admitting that you do not know something than flubbing something because you want to save face or believe you have to save face. And I actually did this, which I'm not saying, I, the majority of my first deals I shared with people. Um, AIR was a big thing then in Soho, and I think that's not something we really talk about as much anymore, artist and residency. Um, I would share listings with people, and yes, I needed the money, I was very young, but that 50% or whatever percentage I was sharing with somebody else taught me 80, 90 fold of what I had to learn with difficult situations. And, your first co-op board package or some significantly difficult <laughs> project, it's not so easy. And you know, for 62% of Americans, real estate is their largest single asset. So just, you don't wanna, it, referral business is important. If you wanna mess it up because you don't know how to do it, it's okay to ask for help. And I think you should ask for more help. And that will wrap it up. <laughs> the wise words from EA is, I will get back to you. I don't know, but I will get back to you is the lesson learned that every sales professional, I don't think it's, it has to be in real estate, but any business owner, if you're asked the question, I don't know. I mean, we're all human. So humble yourself a little bit. Don't act like all the realtors and uh, on the TV shows. And, you know, I don't know. Let me get back to you. Or uh, wise words to wrap up with. And uh, Yay, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thank you for having me. Wow, the time flies when you're having fun. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed our fishing conversations. And okay. for again, for follow for listeners, please follow EA on Instagram. We'll put it on our show notes. Her journey, her life, her fishing, life with her mother, and all of that. Again, once again, thank you for coming. Thank, thank you for sharing your time.